Welcome to the Vinyl Draft Podcast. My name's Andrew Popel. Today, I'm being joined by Chris Flynn. Here on the Final Draft Podcast, we explore books, writing, and literary culture. And every week, I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Now, at Final Draft, we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing, whether it's debut authors or the classics you know and love. In each conversation, we look into the issues that drive the author's storytelling. It's a way to help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. At 2SER, we broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and that treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. As I mentioned today on the show, I'm being joined by Chris Flynn. Chris is a regular guest, a, pro- a prolific um, and incredible writer. He has a new collection of short stories out. It's called Here Be Leviathans. If you are familiar with his novel Mammoth, this collection, it continues Chris's eclectic style and highlights his incredible ability to capture voices wherever and whatever they may be. So join me today as we discover Chris Flynn's Here Be Leviathans. It is my great pleasure to be welcoming to the show Chris Flynn. Chris is a regular guest. He is the author of Mammoth, Here Be Leviathans, The Glass Kingdom, and A Tiger in Eden. He's the editor-in-residence at Museums Victoria. His writing can also be found in a range of publications across the world. Here Be Leviathans is his latest collection. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Andy. It's good to see you. It's good to see you as well. Look, I checked my notes, and the last time we spoke, and this was for Mammoth, which came out mm-hmm. in uh, 2020. Um, yes. One of the more popular things to uh, to come out in 2020, I would say. It was right at the beginning of COVID, less popular. I must have been hiding under an, or under an audio doona. Uh, it is great to have you back, albeit <laughs> we're still via Zoom. Um, and look, Mammoth, it was such a wild ride. Here Be Leviathans is no exception. Before we get to that collection, though, I know there's a big story about what happened with Mammoth. Can you tell me about the aftermath of Mammoth's publication and your journey to becoming a children's book author, amongst other things? Yes, it's um, most unlikely. Uh, What happened was um, I never expected Mammoth to even be published. Um, I just thought it was too strange. Um, The fact that it was published was already a bit of a miracle, um, then it seemed to find an audience during COVID and lockdowns with people, perhaps because it just offered a bit of a glimpse of a totally different world to what the four walls that everyone was experiencing every day. Um, it ended up being my publisher's best-selling book of the year. Um, got shortlisted for a few awards. Um, that's all great. And I thought that would be the end of it. Um, but then in March, 2021, I got an email out of the blue from the head of exhibitions at uh, Museums Victoria. And he wanted me to come in for a meeting. And it was a bit vague. I wasn't really sure what was going on. I assumed they wanted me to consult on something. Um, And when I got in there, I was met with this table full of people all smiling at me. And it turned out that, of course, pretty much everyone in the museum, um, in the science department and elsewhere, had read Mammoth because it's their world. It's the world of you know, fossils and um, ancient ancient creatures. And Museums Victoria had acquired a triceratops specimen, the most complete triceratops that's ever been discovered by humanity. Uh, 87% complete. The skull and the horns, 99% complete. Nothing like it's ever been found. And 
um, they got in early and managed to acquire it from a paleontologist who had discovered it in Montana. And at that time, it was in Canada being cleaned, all the bones being removed, fossils were being removed from the rock casing and it was being cleaned and prepared to be shipped to Melbourne in the midst of lockdown, where we then had to um, reassemble it whilst everyone else was at home. People were in the museum behind the scenes working to rebuild this triceratops and it was described as the strangest piece of Ikea furniture ever. <laughs> um, and I was hired because of Mammoth to bring a voice and personality to the dinosaur. Um, initially for social media, it was going to have its own Twitter account, but that they've kind of backed down a little bit on that. Um, and then to create a suite of books to accompany the opening of the exhibition. The exhibition opened in March of this year. And um, so there's a big coffee table book that I edited full of photographs. Um, this is the most photographed dinosaur in history. Um, the photographs chronicle um, it, it being unearthed in Montana, um, transported and cleaned in Canada, the building of a steel armature in which to house it um, by Canadian oil and gas pipeline welders, and the transport and, and bu building of it in, in Melbourne. And I interviewed paleontologists, um, chefs, all sorts of odd people for the book and created a children's book um, about the adventures of Horridus, which is what the dinosaurs called back in the Cretaceous era. And that came out um, just after the exhibition opened and has been the most successful, um, best-selling item ever in the museum gift shop. And it's also available nationwide through bookstores. Um, and the second one's coming out um, in a few months' time. Um, so all of a sudden, I find myself with a desk at Melbourne Museum with the remit of interpreting their collection and bringing it to life, which is such a strange result from writing a left field book about talking fossils. Um, but in a way, I've kind of just created a niche for myself that, that no one else could have filled. <laughs> I've I've not yet had a chance to look at Horridus's adventures. In my head, I'm feeling like this dinosaur is a rock star right now, but potentially came mm -hmm. from very humble origins. There's, there's maybe a Superman vibe to it, or maybe it's a little bit more Hannah Montana. Can you, <laughs> can you give us, can you give us a hint at, at what, um, what Horridus's voice is like? Well, I had to think about Horridus um, in the present day, where Horridus is a you know an incredible specimen that you can go and visit at Melbourne Museum. And the idea in creating the personality, the contemporary personality, was that Horridus might interact with people on social media, as they do in other museums around the world. Um, Sue, the T-Rex in the Field Museum in Chicago, has her own Twitter account and regularly, you know, makes jokes with restaurants and other, you know, people on so social media. Um, so the contemporary Horridus is a little bit different to the Horridus that appears in the kids' books because... This is 67 million years ago, so they were a bit younger then. And um, But Hor the Triceratops is quite a simple creature, quite a humble creature, um, vegetarian, obviously. Um, uh, and the contemporary Horridus quite likes MasterChef and a big fan of Jeff Bridges because they're both from Montana. Um, and um, uh, so the, but the adventures of Horridus in the Cretaceous era it's an unusual kids book because um, it was checked by all the paleontologists to make sure it was all scientifically correct. Yes, we have talking dinosaurs, which is not correct, but um, amazingly, every bit of flora and fauna in the book is authentic. And 
and the paleontologist went over it with a fine-tooth comb to make sure there were no dinosaurs, that all the dinosaurs are anatomically correct, mm. that all the plants, the plant life is correct as to what it would have been like at that time. Um, and that in itself has been quite illuminating because Ordis's best friend in the book series, and this is the first first in a series, is a, a, an avisaurus called Archie, which is a bird that existed at the same time as Triceratops. Their skeletons have been found next to those of Triceratops, and we believe that they may have had a symbiotic relationship with Triceratops, much like certain birds have in Africa to hippos, where they the avisaurus would have sat perched mm. on the on the crest of the Triceratops in order to catch flies and bugs and keep them away from from the Triceratops, from the dinosaur. So um, everything in there is sort of a learning experience, but also a fun one. I mean, that's got to be an absolute dream for a writer too. You've got this built-in, you don't have to manufacture dialogue moments. You've got this built-in dialogue that just drives the story forward. Yeah, and the whole thing about my appointment at the museum means that um, I'll probably never be short of ideas ever again. Um, uh, I've already had to go to several, you know, very odd meetings where, whereby someone will say, oh, you need to go and talk to the preparators in, in the basement at 10 a.m. Okay. And I'll go there and be met by a, a dude in a uh, white lab coat covered in bloodstains who's doing taxidermy and he wants to pitch me an idea for a for a book about a, a dead wedge tail eagle. <laughs> so I never really know where it's going to take me. Um but it's fabulous having access to all of these um uh, objects in the collection, um dead and inanimate. And it has helped inform my latest book, which is from the voices of um, mm. animals and some inanimate objects. Holy heck, that was a smooth segue, Chris. I was, I was like, we need that to get nice, back to, it? yeah, I, we need to get to here, be Leviathans, because I could, I could honestly talk about, um, you know, meetings in the basement of the museum. How many, how many movie pitches begin with "There's a meeting in the basement of a museum"? <laughs> um, I look. Mammoth introduced us to your incredible ear for these anthropomorphized voices of just about anything. You continue that in to Here Be Leviathans. Is this a hidden skill? Like, do you, or do you have to work on it? Like, are you walking down the street and lampposts are talking to you? Um, it's sort of getting to that point. I, I think when you, once you throw yourself into this kind of world, you do start to wander. And um, I'm now seeing, I'm now looking at the world through a bit of a different lens because um, I've gone down this path whereby I will, I will look at things and um, imagine what kind of internal life they might have if they were um, alive, mm. or um, or whether or not the, the lamp on my desk is actually watching me the whole time and and would be a great chronicler of my life. Um, um, in snippets and this idea of, I mean, we, we, we tend to elevate ourselves to the top of the food chain, right? And, mm. and we are the masters of, of the universe, but I love the idea that, um, we're just moving through the, the world and the universe mm. and it's much bigger and more powerful than us. Um, and we'll be there long after we're gone. 
So we're not the center of it. And, um, but as we pass through, we leave traces of ourselves and it would be interesting to hear what the objects and places and animals think of us as we pass through their world. So it's this um, idea of the end of the Anthropocene, the decentering of the of the, of the human, you know, removing us from the centre of the story. At the risk of derailing our conversation again, have you been informed by any sort of philosophical perspectives here? Because I've, in the last few years, I've been introduced to post-humanist philosophy through my wife's work, and it very much kind of tails into everything, even just the idea of decentering the human and looking at the interconnectedness of the world. And I, I just, I love reading your books because they do bring it into this warm life. Well, I did, um, I don't have a degree, but I did study philosophy for a couple of years at university um, before I eventually came crashing and burning um, to to a halt. Um, So I was one of those people who was introduced to philosophy at quite a young age. Mm. I studied philosophy in France, um, where they do it in high school. Mm. And um, that was a bit of a shock to me, um, uh, finding that out. Um, But I think... Philosophy is great for the um, advancement of the mind um, when you're young. I think everyone should read philosophy whenever they're a teenager um, because it can really change your perspective on the world and your place in it and who you are and, and where you fit in. Um, so, yeah, it is it is something I do, I do bear in mind. Um, I don't know where all this is taking me, though. Um, it, I feel like I've opened this big door and there's this vast world in there that I've now discovered. And um, oof, I don't know, um, it, it's going to take me in all sorts of odd directions, I think. I just I just love, again, I think for a lot of people, they struggle with the idea of decentering the human, like that we are not somehow this apex in evolution. Mm. And your characters, the voices you, you create, make it seem so natural. So I, I really love that. And on those voices, look, this is going to be, I think this is maybe a highly subjective call. Um just based in the history of anthropomorphized voices. But insofar as I know, you write an extremely convincing saber-tooth, grizzly, commercial plane seat, amongst others. Like, what's your process? Is the voice defined by the animal slash object or is it is the voice defined by the story? That is a good question. Um, it is very difficult to determine what the voice will be like. And I... Th- I try not to think about it too much um, because I don't want to force it into any kind of uh, narrow aperture um, where I'm, I mean, it'd be terrible if the voices felt really sort of fake and contrived and enforced. Um, I tend to let the events of the story determine the voice and um, be a bit loosey goosey with it. So for example, when in the story about the colony of platypuses um, where they rescue a talking platypus rescues two German backpackers, which sounds ridiculous. And then they hide in the platypus den from a crocodile. And it turns out the platypuses are putting on a contemporary art show in their den and are arguing about the merits of contemporary art. Um, There's an explanation as to why they can talk, why they're intelligent. It's because they were, you know, uh, genetically modified in a, in a lab in Queensland, but then their voices, I was like, how on earth do you make them talk? So I realized that their voices would come from the story. It was, if they were born in a lab in Queensland, 
um, having worked in places like that, you, it, people are often very sort of down to earth and, um, <laughs> and, and, and Australian. And so these platypuses learned from the ordinary Australian lab techs, um, uh, how to, how to talk and what their vernacular is. So they end up speaking in a very sort of ochre Aussie accent. Um, whereas some of the other stories like the, the airline seat story is a, is a workplace story. It's about the workplace for this seat and all the different, um, uh, characters in the workplace, the, the suck ups, the gossips, the serious people, um, the comedians, and and what it's like to be trapped in a workplace with those people you've you i mean we've all been there you're in some office or some job where you think god i would never choose to spend time with any of these people um but i have to because i work here so i wanted to tell that kind of story and and that sort of grew out of um mine and other people's experiences in the workplace um so it, it tends to be determined a little bit by the circumstances in which the story are set and um, and where the story is going. Yeah, I mean, look, I have no problem believing uh, in talking platypuses. I, I mean, I find it much harder to believe that they can afford a riverfront studio apartment space <laughs> come gallery in the current sort of market. But, you know, hey, speculative fiction. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, Chris, I don't even know if I've properly mentioned that Here Be Leviathans is a short story collection. We've, we've um, tangentially sort of referred to different stories in the collection. One thing about any short story collection is hitting the balance between speaking kind of generally about the book and then getting specific because we probably don't have time to cover every single tale. Right. I, yeah. I, I have a few faves. And as I, even as I was writing this question that I am reading to you now, I vacillated between particularly Inheritance and Alas, Poor Yorick. But before we get to anything I'm interested in, do you have a favourite from the collection that you like to talk about? Like maybe one that you just say, hey, look at this. Um, I had a, a huge soft spot for um, the... L- there's a few very long stories, as you know, and mm. the the Strait of Magellan, which is a story about a sort of super yacht off the coast of Chile, um, uh, as it tries to protect its passengers from a virus um, that also ends up speaking to us as it stows away on board. Um, I had a big soft spot for that story for a long time because I started it ages before the pandemic, and I was super excited to write my version of a a zombie story, if you like, or an end of the mm-hmm. world story. Um, and that was going to be a much longer, you know, book length thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I struggled with it a bit. That's, I, th- I think would be, I, I like that one because it was a hard one for me to write. And um, we did a lot of edits on it, um, played around with it quite a lot, more so than probably any of the other stories. And to this day, I'm still not 100% convinced I'm happy with it. <laughs> but um uh, it's a very individualistic story um, that probably will make some people roll their eyes because it's a pandemic story, but also it might um, it might put the pandemic into a little bit of perspective because it could have been so much worse. Um, but other than that, alas, per Yorick, yeah, I'm a big I'm a big fan of uh, of the Space Monkey. 
Um, that process, I, I noticed in your postscript, you talked about how this book was a vast endeavour and mm. it's something like 10 years and, and each story you, you describe as approaching like a novel, especially in your mm. research. Um, I mean, it sounds like the, there is a real labour of love to this. You're not necessarily approaching this as a commercial endeavour if, you know, <laughs> an 18-page story is is potentially the work of 10 years. I, like, I love that. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, the problem with narrative is that I think too often we try to um, we try to uh, force narrative into to be a certain length, uh, right? So short story collections, usually you'll have, you know, a bunch of stories that will be, you know, two to 5,000 words long. And then novels, you know, 70 to 100,000, um, and that's it. Nothing else is allowed, um, and I and I think that's sort of crazy that we that we only have those sort of forms. And if you try to write a novella, you're you're done. Like no one's interested. Um, um, so I, with this, because these stories were percolating in, in in the background over a long period of time, I just let them be whatever length that they wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was aware at the time when I was writing some of them that they probably were never going to see the light of day because. Um, they're too long. They're 12,000 words. It's really awkward. Mm. Um, and, you know, a few of them I showed to some people and they said, oh, well, you should turn this into a novel. But we've all read those kind of books where it's clearly a great idea that's been stretched way beyond the point it should have been in order to pad it out to novel length and it ends up ruining the story. Um, um, so I just let them be whatever length they wanted to be. And um, then when it came to this idea of a collection, I thought, well, this is going to be an odd one. Um, there's some very long stories here. It's people are going to struggle with this, but to their credit, my publisher were fully behind it and um, and quite excited about it. Whereas other other people, other publishers, you mentioned short stories, and they're like, "I'll stop you right there. <laughs> oh, we have no interest." <laughs> but short story collections generally don't sell as well as novels. It's pretty rare for a story collection to do really well. Um, so you've got lower expectations from from the get-go, even though people who like them tend to say they love them because they are short and you can read a story in an hour and and take a certain satisfaction from that or read it in 20 minutes on the toilet, you know, and, and it, it sort of fits in better to our, to contemporary life. So it's kind of odd to me that they're not more popular. I, yeah, I, I mean, and also, very good point. I feel like there's you've just pitched me a segment where I need to do like a you know a best short story, best Australian short story collections because they are fantastic. They are doing things that we're not necessarily seeing in longer fiction. Mm. And stylistically, it can, as you say, when we're stuck in form, it can almost if you're if you're a shrewd reader, it can almost ruin your reading experience when you sit down with a novel and you've got sort of it's about two eighty to three fifty pages. And you realise at page 100, 110, you're like, oh, there's there's a first first arc beat. And, oh, right. so the second arc is going to do this. We get to page 220 and like, oh, no, now we're in the, um, now we're in the denouement, the penultimate moment. And it's like, wow. It's like, I admire the craft, but it also takes something away. And, you know, a, a collection, collection like Here Be Leviathan shakes you up in that sense. Yeah, well, that's... That's nice of you to say, but um, it, I do get frustrated with the novel form sometimes. I love the, the novel form because it's 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 it gives you so much room to play. Mm. Um, 
But I think where it comes a bit unstuck is, um, you know, authors not wanting any of their genius to be cut out. <laughs> mm. And so we've all also read novels where you, you're 50 pages in, you're like, oh, this is the beginning. Those other pages was just the author clearing their throat. Um, and you, you don't have time for that with short stories. You have to, you've only got a very limited space. So you, you have to just try to engage the reader instantly and uh, and leave them at the end satisfied. Um, I read that in the New Yorker, um, who you know are renowned for publishing short stories, um, they would be brutal with their edits, even on very famous authors. And often, they will cut the last few paragraphs from an author's story, wow. much to the author's horror, and say, "Well, that's because your ending was actually up here, but you just kept going." Like the end of the Lord of the Rings, there's like 17 endings. You know, um, you just got to stop it here. Um, so they're they're clever with the short story form. They know how to like start and finish a story um, without um, ruining it by dragging it on too long or having too long a, a beginning. I love this. I love the, 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 yeah, when you, not only when you shake up, but also just even when you start deliberately thinking about stylistic choices, it brings so much to your reading. Hey, um, Chris, I mentioned a few favorites and I did, I may have prepared a question or two. Will right. you indulge me? Of course, go ahead. So we've already mentioned Alas Poor Yorick. You also mentioned it as a bit of a, a bit of a star in the sky of Here Be Leviathans. <laughs> it's the story of a macaque stolen from the wild to become a test pilot in the US Air Force. Albert Six, codenamed Yorick, is a cocky but endearing character who befriends a test mouse named Brendan Nine. We follow them on their mission to space. And this story, for me, it, it highlighted the role animals have played in developing so much of our modern world, things that were too dangerous for humans to take a chance on. But it does it in this sort of... Uh, you've, you've almost got the hero's journey in about 18 mm. pages. Is, is Yorick, that, is that what Yorick is? is? Is it a kind of a statement or an homage to these, these test animals? Well, I read um, that in the 1950s, um, particularly in 1951, when they were sending all of these um, monkeys into, into space, initially on V2 rockets that had been sort of purloined from the Nazis, and the rockets would explode, the parachute wouldn't deploy. Um, all these animals were perishing um, uh, in order to make it safer for humans um, whenever they were finally going to shoot us into space. Um, and I read on the NASA website, you know, there's a very brief mention of the Albert monkeys, um, but there's no statue for Albert Six. There's no, you know, there's no, like, it's not like a statue of Shane Warren out the front of the MCG, you know. Um, there's there's no statue of Yorick on the forecourt of NASA in Florida. Um, he just gets a very brief mention on the website. And I thought, but Without him, I mean, he, he actually saved lots of lives. Um, there would have been loads of humans who would have been killed. So he made a sacrifice. And I like this idea that he knew that what, what was going on mm. and he wasn't afraid. In fact, he was, he was up for it. He had the right mm. stuff. And he's like, I know that this is important. We were doing this for the betterment of everyone. I will do it and I will be capable of doing it. I am, I am, I am not going to be a passive um, presence here. Um, he thinks he's he's there to mm. succeed and and to help the mission succeed. And he he did. Albert Six was the first monkey to reach the edge of space and make it back. Although, you know, it's a bit of a spoiler, but um, I guess it's historical. Um, he did 
not make it much further than that. You you also put into him, I guess, these leadership qualities, and there's this. It's just really beautiful the relationship with Brent, Brenda Nine, particularly, mm-hmm. um, and those. I guess the. It's a little bit of a trope, but also it's beautiful when it's between a macaque and a mouse, that finding <laughs> something within yourself, that, that propensity to, to do more than you believed possible. Well, I think we underestimate animals. You know, I worked in the RSPCA for five years um, when I was writing Mammoth, and um, you very quickly learn your place um, is not quite what you thought it was. Um, uh, animals are often... Um, more canny than us, smarter than us. Um, they they have very rich lives that we often do not understand or just ignore. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about whales, for example, I mean, whales sing to each other. We don't know what they're saying. Um, they could be the most intelligent creatures on the planet and we wouldn't have a clue. Um, so I love this idea that um, that not only do animals have an internal, a rich internal life, but they um, they may also possess qualities that you might normally ascribe to humans. And it's very easy for us to think we're the only ones who have those qualities, but maybe we don't. And maybe some animals are actually more qualified um, to do tasks than we are. Mm. I mean, I believe you. I am perennially unable to give myself that sort of five-minute window that would allow me to be on time for literally anything. And yet <laughs> one, of, one of my two cats, presumably without um, the skill of, of reading human clocks, um, manages to, on a dime, like tell me when I ne- she needs to be fed, including like batting me awake in the morning. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. No, that's right. I have two cats as well, and they sometimes I think not they children, are the most intelligent, um, <laughs> not children. That's right. <laughs> they were mistaken for my children, but in an interview in the age, <laughs> um, which everyone was surprised that I didn't know how old they were. Um, yeah, and sometimes I think they're the most intelligent um, beings in the house. Um, they sort of run the place. I'm surprised they're not poking their heads in here right now. Yeah, well, it, is, it looks cold where you are. It's cold where I am. My hours, mine are asleep. So that's <laughs> otherwise they have been a known to peer on Mike. <laughs> um, in the so the story inheritance, it opens the collection. Uh, it also opens with the iconic line, "I ate a kid called Ash Tremblay yesterday," and which is just what a what a hook. Um, you tell the story of the fraught balance of development and wilderness as our point of view grizzly is hunted by a determined ranger after killing a teenager. I was really intrigued with the concept that you give us there of inheritance, retaining the memories of something you've eaten, and particularly the conversations between Ash and the grizzly. Do you like where did that idea come from? I'm, I'm assuming that there is uh, some precedent, but also do you think our world would look different if that were possible? Like when we're eating things, we actually got more of a sense of their existence? Well, I did a fair bit of research into this and it is eerie um, how many uh, how many cultures, particularly First Peoples, actually do kind of believe this. Um, and uh, this is set in Canada, or sorry, in Alaska, this story. And... Um, the first peoples there have a very strong sense that um, that your memories do pass from one generation to the next, um, partic- and that you know eating an animal, um, you you take on part of its spirit. Um, so it's not an uncommon idea. It's just 
a bit anathema to modern science. Um, and um, this story is also based on something that really happened, um, where a teenager on a fun run in Alaska decided to take a shortcut um, to, in order to win the race and ran into a grizzly bear. Um, because these fun runs are out in the mountains. I went to this place where the story takes place, Girdwood in Alaska. These fun runs, they're out in the mountains and there's no, just no way they can get all the bears to leave the area. So they just sort of pl- plot the course around where they know the bears are <laughs> and and hope for the best. It's, it's crazy. Mm. Um, so this kid did run into a, a grizzly and the grizzly did chomp down on his head um, and then was hunted down by the rangers. Um, so I thought it would be fun to have the teenager who seems like a bit of a dick um, inside the head of the grizzly. Um, but in doing so, the species form a better understanding of each other. The grizzly comes to sympathize a little bit with the with the teenager who is the most unliked teenager um, in his time because he's a bully. Um, but the and the bear forms a little bit of a sort of father relationship with the kid mm. um, because they're stuck together. Um, uh, and again, it's it's sort of a philosophical notion of. Um, who are we and how do we, how, how is our personality formed inside our head? You think of how does your brain work? It's impossible to know, but um, it's a, a mishmash of influences from all your life. And how much of that is the memories of others, mm. the stories that other people have told you, things that didn't actually happen to you, but you over, over time, you start to believe, Oh, was that me did that? Or was it someone else? So I, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with how memory works and, how we constantly rewrite our, our own past to make ourselves, you know, funnier, smarter, um, sharper than we actually were at the time or more tragic than we were at the time. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think memory is very fluid, much more so than we might um, like to think about. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in both, in both inheritance and also alas, poor Yorick and, and actually in much of the collection, I detected this underlying theme of communication or perhaps more aptly, it's, it's a tragedy of a failure of communication. So at a point, I don't want to, I don't want to give away too much, but at a point in the story, your, your grizzly forms a rudimentary sign language to communicate mm. with the ranger and, and at the same time laments how astonishing that I can communicate however rudimentarily with the two le- with the two legs, our great adversary. What wonders might our species achieve together if further discussion were possible? Yorick also speaks of this kind of communal language with humans, saying they used to know it back when they were an integral part of the natural world, but then they distanced themselves from the rest of us. They became elevated, or so they believed. I love that. I love like the, you are you are in conversation with thousands of years of mythology and kind of cultural discussion here. Tell me about this desire to find a common tongue. Yeah, I, I think it maybe grew out of a little bit of my experience at the uh, at the RSPCA, and then doing a bit of research into ancient languages and um, ancient cultures and how they communicated. And often the miscommunication. Um, one of the things I discovered um, when I was researching mammoth was that um, in Sicily there are um, caves, um, and in ancient Greece, um, uh, in, in ancient times, they found mammoth 
um, skeletons in these caves. And, of course, fossils were, haven't just been dug up in contemporary times. They've been digging them up throughout history. Mm. But we at least have some sort of idea of what they might be. But in the ancient world, people had no clue what they were. Uh, and so whenever um, mammoth bones were found in this cave in Sicily, um, the Greeks re- reassembled them incorrectly. And they thought it was the Cyclops. Um, because of the huge nasal cavity in, in a dead elephant's skull, they thought that was an eye socket um, where, where the trunk would have been, you know? And they so so this sort of led to the myth of the Cyclops. And uh, I thought this is incredible to think about um, how the ancient world tries to communicate with us, the dead tried to communicate with us, um, as well as the living world around us, constantly trying to tell us things, mm. but we're not very good at listening. And how how different would would our history be? Would our would our contemporary world be? Would our future be if we could actually um, hear, stop, and listen to to the language of of, of plants, of trees, of animals, um, of of nature, which we we blotted out, I think, because mm. it's too inconvenient to listen because once you start to listen it's kind of hard to go back the other way and say oh well actually we need to stop chopping down those trees or we need to be a bit more a bit kinder to those um to to that cattle um and i i think humans often choose to ignore the languages that we probably could understand if we just tried a bit harder i love that i could not agree more i mean it's it's like we forget the the foundation of language before we even get to any sort of signal that we're transmitting is that there is something in me that is common to something in you and that we might have a way to to relay that to each other and really simple things like the the desire to live the desire to survive and thrive mm. which is is a part of the story of inheritance it's we make it seemingly, as you say, too easy to ignore that that might exist in sometimes other people, let alone other yeah. animals, um, elements of our we world. Like, we um, em- empathy is in short supply in the world, and we could probably do with a lot more of it. And I think we forget that we are nature. You know, mm. We're not separate from it. We didn't. We weren't. We're not robots. We weren't dropped here by aliens. We. We are part, an integral part of nature, um, and a, a pretty nasty part of it. Really, we're we're not a very holistic part of nature. We are generally pretty aggressive and um, pretty destructive, um, and it would probably hold us in good stead as we as we try to survive on this planet to um, to be a bit more um, cautious about how we treat ourselves, each other, and the natural world in which we all live in. I love that. Um- Chris, we've only we've only touched on we've we've talked about two of the stories in here, Be Leviathans. There is so much more for people to discover, and thank you so much for taking the time today. I want to reintroduce you. I'm speaking with Chris Flynn. He is the author of uh, the incredible. We are discussing here, Be Leviathans, but also Mammoth. And um, if you haven't checked it out, his new children's book, Horridus and the Hidden Valley. Chris, it's been just uh, it's always amazing to have a chance to chat. No, you, you you're always great. Great, great questions from you, Andre. I always love talking to you. 
That's it for the conversation with Chris Flynn. Thank you for joining me. Chris's new book is Hebe Leviathans. It is out now from University of Queensland Press. Check out all of Chris's incredible work. Um, it, mammoth, his stories. It's, yeah, such a trip. And who doesn't love dinosaurs? <laughs> Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. I would love for you to stay in touch. Reading is something that is best shared. You will find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Look for the handle at Final Draft 2SER. If you want to hear more from the podcast, we broadcast every week on 2SER on Saturday mornings. And if you subscribe in your podcast app, a new episode will also appear for you wherever you are. My name is Andrew Bobel. I am going to be back with more incredible stories for 2023, sharing great Australian writing from the mouths of the people that create it. Till next week, happy reading. Bye for now.